Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. They've got Jacob DeGrom. They pick up Carlos Carrasco in the deal. Marcus Stroman back this year. Now Taiwan Walker and then David Peterson ends up going to the fifth spot in the rotation. And then you start to push back Joey Lucchese, maybe in the long relief and, and, and you know some of the depth that they picked up Yamamoto from, from the Marlins. And so you start looking at the Mets right now. It's not Trevor Bauer. But Taiwan Walker's not bad, and he handles right-hander as well, and he's got to find a way to maneuver around big left-handed bats in the lineup. Uh, a guy like Juan Soto could bite him, uh, but you'll see how he handles the rest of that lineup. Uh, but uh, Taiwan Walker in the midst, uh, in the fold for the New York Mets. Yeah, you've got some big, uh, big hairy monsters, as Brian Cashman would say, from the left side of that division. You got, you got Freddie Freeman, you got Juan Soto, you got Bryce Harper. Um, so that's going to, that, that's going to be tough, but I love it for the Mets and I love what the Mets have done. They've, they've added so much depth. They haven't gone after, I mean, well, they've gone after some, but they, they've only landed the one, um, big fish with, with Lindor. Um, but they've really deepened the pool of talent on this team. If injuries hit you, they've got guys, like you said, uh, Lucchese, uh, Yamamoto, they signed Mike Montgomery, who I've always liked, um, to, to, to the team. So, you know, they're going to have a lot of options if someone goes down as someone always does. And if no one goes down, I like their rotation a lot. I, I, I think this move really makes me feel a lot more comfortable with it, especially when you think about uh, Syndergaard coming back at some point, too. I'm not throwing out any anything because I know it's going to be headlines tomorrow. Strowman thinks this, this, and this. But I, I speak highly of our guys for a reason. Um, I think we're unbelievable what we have. I think any team can always make additions, but I love our staff. I love our staff one through five. I love our entire team, to be honest with you. If we're nitpicking, you can nitpick with any team and say, oh, yeah, it'd be better if we added this, this, and this. But let's be real here. Look at who we added in the offseason, and let's be thankful for that. And let's get the fan base excited and ready to play baseball for this year. 
It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, February the 21st, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and get the Apple show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Com. Uh, welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast, a Pitchers and Catchers edition. We always do that first official show of the baseball season started. And Pitchers and Catchers is that symbolic report date. Of course, you have the full squad reporting, I believe, Monday, Tuesday, uh, tomorrow, just 24 hours away. And we're, depending on where you are, you're still shoveling snow. It's sloppy. It's wet. It's cold. It's just ugh. Very, very depressing week. Nothing is worse than that January, February. I know it's getting a little bit lighter now. So you're seeing that, no pun intended, light at the end of the tunnel of the winter. But some of these cold January days, February days, post-holiday, where, you know, you just feel like, ugh, it just, it's, it's hard. And, all right, you got the Super Bowl, and you, if you're an NBA fan, you still have some sports to go into, but especially with how the hot hot stove went and how slow it was. And there was a couple of sparks if you were a Mets fan, especially during the Trevor Bauer saga and George Springer and what have you. But uh, for the most part, you're probably happy that baseball's back, and so am I. And joining me, have a special guest to kick off pitchers and catchers. Why not have a big league pitcher kick off pitchers and catchers? Former Met, member of the 2000 National League Champions, Glendon Rush, will join me. Glennon's on Twitter, at Glennon Rush, and I've been following him for years, and I've been meaning to get him on the show, and I just said, Let, let's see what we can do as a guest for pitchers and catchers. I'm not going to spend an hour just breaking down every comment that was made at every press conference over the you know the past few days, but it is nice to have baseball back, and Glennon, I had a chance to catch up with him on the first day of pitchers and catchers back on Wednesday, so you'll hear that in just a little bit, but uh, to start off, I think there is generally optimism among the fan base. I think there's optimism that you actually have a real baseball schedule ahead of you, that there's the possibility of some kind of attendance in the ballpark. I mean, when you hear that even California might have some fans in the stands come April, that's very encouraging. That's the one state you didn't think you'd see anything like that. We'll see. But in general, I think there's optimism that things are starting to normalize in the sport. There's still going to be some quirks of public health and safety that you know don't make the sport look like it is. I think those will change as we go deeper and deeper into the season. I still don't like some of the rules with the runner on second base and the seven-inning doubleheaders, no DH. But we've really yelled about that to death. You know, Now is the time to move forward. Accept our lot. I always said that throughout the whole challenges of Wilpon ownership while I was doing this show. It's, it's no point and spending an inordinate amount of time to complain about what you don't have. Just focus on what you do, and that's what we're going to do. So I think that fans are happy. 
I don't think those things that are about quote unquote public health or in my eyes bastardizing the game in terms of some of the rules are going to bother them too much. Don't let it bother them. Don't let it bother you too much. Uh, there's uh, certainly optimism around the team. You could see it on Twitter. You could hear it in the press conference uh, with Louis Rojas and any of the of the players. Look, like I say on a, a signing of a, or, or a new manager or what have you, if you're negative day one of spring training, just like if you're negative day one of the press conference, it's going to be a long season. Now, yeah, if you're the Pittsburgh Pirates or a rebuilding team, potentially there's not the same level of optimism, but you have optimism in a different way, and you're trying to look forward to a new regime, a new era. Here with the Mets, it's a new era, which is welcome with a new owner, and hopefully a breath of fresh air where there's new process in place and there's new sources of revenue to be able to improve the team and and do things like some of the top teams in the sport, like the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Red Sox and, and so on. But in the same breath, there's a, a continuance of this group in trying to capitalize on DeGrom's years, the pitching that they have, some of the young core that was developed as Sandy Alderson left his first tenure, and continue to try to go forward and win, something they've been trying to do since the offseason of 2018 into 2019. So it's one of these hybrid type of situations where, yeah, it's a new era, but there's still a lot of the old era. And I think that'll come in as I go on a little bit here, and I know there's been some negativity, mainly from the media, uh, trying to ruin your good feel of pitchers and catchers in day one. Louis Rojas uh, talked about a sense of camaraderie. Uh, you know, I think part of that is Louis seems to be, I know he said he had some things to work in, in game, and I agree with that, but uh, he seems to be a very balanced, good personality for New York, has good baseball background coming from the Yalu family. I think having an owner... That And you can see, listening to Steve Cohen in a couple of interviews, I know he was down in Port St. Lucie uh, yesterday, having that interest and enthusiasm. And you're never going to get a chance to uh, make a second chance at a first impression. And as time goes on, he'll learn, just like every other owner, this is a grind. And sometimes, financially, it's a, it's a drain. But hopefully, he can keep that enthusiasm that you're seeing now throughout his ownership tenure, maybe in different versions and modified versions but hopefully he keeps that. Hopefully his sense of achievement, the fact that he was a pioneer uh, you know, in an industry, he could bring that mindset. Even though he knows probably nothing about building a team, he could bring that mindset along with a nice checkbook to this new front office, new-ish front office, new old front office, and this organization. I think the Mets had a decent offseason. Don't let anybody tell you they didn't. They rounded out the roster this week with a couple of more players, Tyon Walker and Kevin Pillar, moves they both like. Walker, multi-year deal. They're hedging their bets on losing Stroman or Syndergaard. They're going to probably lose one of those guys, especially if Stroman has a big year. I think he's a goner. Uh, we'll see about Syndergaard. You have a former top 10 prospect. Uh, they thought in Seattle he'd be the next uh, King Felix. And uh, right now you're just looking for him to be a competent fifth starter and really replace Steven Matz and... He's very similar in the sense where Matt, you knew, top, former top prospect, had all the makings of a top-of-the-rotation pitcher, showed some of that when he first came up, and even his second year in 2016, but has really been struggling to uh, recapture that. Walker really never has shown that level of success. I mean, he didn't pitch in the World Series competitively like Matt's did, but what you're hoping at his age, mid to late 20s, that he's had that second act, 
and you're really hoping that, and you read the, there's an article in The Athletic from last spring where he's really now more of a baseball savant understanding the game, not just working uh, based on his talent, based on his, you know, raw talent. He really is starting to understand himself after Tommy John's surgery, being out a couple of years, and really having to make himself back, you know, completely here from uh, potentially being an afterthought. I mean, who would have thought of uh, Taiwan Walker a couple of years that he was out after he, he got hurt in Arizona? Has a little personality. You could see that early on on Twitter. He's going to take number 99, so he's our new Turk Wendell-type character, maybe. If this guy can be a good number five, and I always say a good rotation is when you have a pitcher that's a number five, but can at any given moment give you number three or better performance. And I thought that was Matt's. More number three than above, but that's valuable. And if you could get him in that second act, that renaissance, if there's still if there's something still in him that made him that top prospect that he can pull out, then you're going to get the best two or three years of Taiwan Walker on the back half of his, his career. You know, why can the why do the Dodgers do it with like a Rich Hill? Why not the Mets? And then all of a sudden, this offseason, um, you're not as, as, as beholden to going out and spending money in the free agent market. And, and potentially with big extensions coming up with two of your big offensive core com- component players, you know, core players in, in Lindor and Conforto, um, you can manage your, your entire roster better. And I think that's a comment that I'm going to make regarding some of the criticism the Mets have gotten. Kevin Pillar, bit of a surprise after they had gotten Almora, but uh, I think it's the Mets hedging their bets. I wanted Marisnik. I guess this, I mean, I, I think Pilar's a better hitter, definitely a better hitter than Marisnik. Not a better defensive player, but a good defensive player. The scatter reports I've read, he's got good instincts. I know that UZR and things like that don't match up well with him. But if you read a baseball perspective scouting report, positioning with Pilar and baseball instincts are a big part of who he is. So I'm not sure how much of that shows up in a UZR ranking. And I'm not going to be end-all BR with UZR. He can still play defense. He hits left-handed pitching, plays hard, from all accounts has a good attitude. The Mets don't just have an outfield depth problem. They have a left-handed hitting problem in the outfield. All their outfielders are lefty. They need some righty uh, balance. And it can't be J.D. Davis playing left. You know, I think J.D. should play one position and, and stay there. But, uh, you know, Pilar provides that, whether to, to spell Dominic Smith against a tough lefty, mainly Nimmo, who knows, maybe even Conforto. Maybe Conforto needs a couple of days off. You never know. I don't even know who the, the 40-man roster move is for Pilar. I know they put Syndergaard on the 60-day. Maybe there's a reason why. Probably Seth Lugo maybe goes on the 60-day. I'm thinking he's going to be out till the end of May. We'll see. Uh, so I'm curious where they're going to go with uh, with this move. I haven't seen that made, but I have no problem with that. I know they didn't sign Trevor Rosenthal. I know the bullpen is still something that bothers everybody. I, I wasn't for, look, $10, $11 million for Trevor Rosenthal is pretty much in the market for what, and he's got a chance to close. And remember, this is a key point here. A lot of these guys that pass for the Mets, Brad Hand, Trevor Rosenthal, so on and so forth, you know all the names that are out there. They knew coming here that Edwin Diaz is going to get a chance to close. And if Edwin Diaz is who we think he is, he ain't going to give up that closer role. He's good. I think we worry about him in a big spot between the ears. But from all other accounts, he's good. He's better than any of the options that are out there. Rosendahl was out for a year with uh, injury, arm injury. He was awful two years ago in Washington. You guys saw it. Mets battered him around. He was signed by the Yankees. Didn't even make it out of the minor leagues later that year. 
uh, walks still, even in his best days, walks way too many players. You pretty much have Trevor Rosenthal on your roster right now with Familia and Batances. Adding another guy like that is not necessarily what I think is in their best interest. Everybody retching their hands about Justin Wilson. I like Justin Wilson, but I heard Andy Martino, what he said, that the Mets thought uh, Aaron Loop was better. And I'm going to trust, and I know it's a new front office, and it's a front office that probably isn't complete, and maybe we'll look back at this chaotic time and say, wow, you know, they really missed a lot of opportunities because they really didn't have their stuff together. Hard to put together everything like we've talked about when you take over the team as a new owner on November 1st. But, um, you know, away you go. Mets have to develop somebody, whether it's Sam McWilliams. They have Barnes, who they took off of the scrap heap. Yancy Diaz, who they uh, acquired from Toronto. They have their own prospect, Riley Gilliam. Drew Smith has been, you know, in the system for a while. Can, can they finally develop a bullpen arm? I'm not asking for a closer here. A guy who could get somebody out in the sixth or seventh inning. That's what they're looking for. Lugo will be back. I'm not, you know, obviously his arm is a problem, but chips, bone chips are not the end of the world. When we went into the offseason, I said the defense needs to improve, and it has. And I think McCann, if you listen to him with Howie Rose and Susan Waldman last week on WFAN, and I recommend you go to the WFAN General Archive and download that, he is really a student of the game. It was a pleasure listening to. Here's a guy that before video in the minor leagues when he played in Toledo uh, would take his own, like, scattering reports and make them up. In AAA, how many players do that? Because he was preparing to be valuable as a two-way player, not just an offensive catcher who caught the ball, but as a true receiver. Uh, their defense is better at short with Lindor. They have Pilar and Almora potentially to spell in the outfield. Guillaume, I think, is very underrated. Could play multiple positions and play it well. So the defense is better. You still have Nimmo in center, and I'm not sure. You know, I think McNeil's a really good second baseman. I don't know if he's a Gold Glove, but I think he's better than Cano. Uh, you got tons of versatility with VR and McNeil and Guillerme. Uh, the offense was elite last year. I think it'll continue to be elite, even with the subtraction of Cano. Rojas talked about some of the little things that could make that offense even better, like good base running. Um, he also talked about things that have been a problem for a long time. Defense, which some of that is just getting better defensive personnel. Hopefully with some of the investments in analytics and technology, they could work on helping them with uh positioning and, and getting better with whatever they can provide them. And then the one thing that doesn't get talked about is Mets base running, which has been bad. It's been bad for a long time. And again, that could be the kind of players they bring in, but that could also be holding players accountable, something that I don't think happened all the time under Terry Collins. Uh, didn't happen with Mickey Calloway. That was one of the bigger disappointments I had with Mickey Calloway. And I think Louis Rojas has to establish himself where, hey, if you don't play a complete game, if you don't do the little things, you're not going to be part of this. You're not going to be in the middle of the lineup. I'm going to go to somebody else. Uh, you have to be confident and have the support of, of management that if Pete Alonso starts out hitting a buck 50 the first 10, 11 days, he's going to sit. He needs to know that he, he doesn't have a scholarship here. Um, and I'm not picking on Pete. I'm just using an example over here. So uh, at the end, uh, I know Rojas is on the hot seat. He's got a good team, a team that's expected to compete. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be Sharks around the you know around the uh, the tank here they're going to circle the wagon on Rojas if they get off to a slow start or he makes some in-game issues that are blatant it's funny nobody for 7 years cared when Terry Collins blatantly made bad bullpen moves but Rojas newer younger manager doesn't have the same relationship with the media you see where that goes but all he has to do can he connect with the team most importantly those are the biggest stakeholders out there communicate and bond with those guys can he can he bond with his new management group that's important. You know, he's got Sandy who knows him, but got a lot of guys like Zach Scott that do not. 
Can he manage the media effectively? I think he will. I don't think he's going to give them anything really to, to create controversy like Callaway. And ultimately, the in-game management, when he talks about getting better, is the bullpen. And hopefully they give him the ability to do that. There's no script. Bullpens are hard to script. You have to have a feel. It's nuanced. Uh, and that's really important. Uh, are the Mets a 95-win team guaranteed like baseball prospectus states? Are they a shoe-in for the playoffs? No. I can't say that. They need. They may need another bullpen arm. And I think they could go out and get that throughout the season. And I think you might see a couple of minor league invites in spring that, that could potentially uh, play a part in that bullpen. Um, I know the rotation could get short if they have uh, bad health. Uh, we have they have some interesting depth pieces they acquired, but certainly not at the level of Carrasco and Stroman and and Degrom and and Syndergaard and and what have you. Can Dom Smith regress? Can JD Davis flame out at third? All these things could happen. The Mets are not guaranteed because there's still some players that need to show you a larger sample size. They have a lot to prove. We knew that. We know that. But they're good, and I think they're fun, and I think the mindset that hopefully starts at the top with Steve Cohen going out there aggressively improving throughout the course of a season, turning over every stone, being involved in every single conversation, no matter how ludicrous it is. I mean, they were involved in Chris Bryant talks more so than I really imagined. So so the Mets are looking at everything, and that's the mindset I believe that should continue throughout. And I think that's why this is going to be a fun, exciting new era in Mets baseball. One that we have never seen maybe ever. Cause even Frank Cashin back in those glory days of the eighties was a very conservative at times, closed minded executive. Uh, so this, this is fun. This is different for all of us. Now it wouldn't be the Mets without the media doing their Dr. Doom shtick. And you saw it right away, right? They're trying to bait DeGrom into being unhappy about his contract. They, by the way, the media can be the most miserable group of people at times. Not all of them. There's some good ones. And the good ones come on this show. So remember that. They show up on the Talking Mets podcast. They're the good ones. But um, I'm just, they're not happy about looking objectively at the team. They need to create some kind of buzzy headline. So Joel Sherman writes at the Post that the Mets have to wash the wool pun away. And I agree with that to a, a large degree because I think the PTSD is more with the fans and the media and the media trying to keep it than it is with the organization. I think players kind of, and even if you listen to Marcus Stroman's press conference, he dispelled so many narratives about the Mets in that press conference. His introduction, go listen to it. I don't care what you'd like about Stroman, his politics, forget about all that. Let's just, just He was very honest and forthright and said a lot of things that I think we've said on this podcast about the perception of the Mets, perception of this group. And how even though Steve Cohen coming in is exciting, it's not like he's coming in at, at zero here. Winning the offseason means nothing. The Mets signing Real Muto, Springer, Bauer, and they came real close to Bauer. I think they came about as close as you can without closing a deal. Uh, that would have been fun. We know that. But they won the offseason in 1992, and they won the offseason 2001 into 2002. And what did that do? The Mets were what they said they were going to be. They were going to be opportunistic. They were going to be responsible at the top. And they were going to balance their short and their long term. Extensions for Conforto and Lindor are generally something with potentially the two of them combined making 70 to $80 million they have to address. They could have, if they sign one of Stroman and, and I said this last week or the week before, I'm trying to remember. If they sign one of Stroman and, and Syndergaard, which you would hope, hopefully that they perform up to expectations, you have $120 million, 60% of your up to the, the luxury tax payroll out of Lindor, Conforto, one of Stroman and, 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 and Thor, 
and, and DeGrom. I mean, that's a lot of money. And it's other people's money. It's the funny. The media's like, oh, 20, just spend the money over the luxury tax. Well, yeah, the Dodgers are doing that. But you want to do that for the right players, and you want to do that responsibly. You know, they throw millions of other people's dollars away, the media, but they'll go and they'll try to score a free $50 uh, lunch at the ballpark to save money. You know, treat other people's money how you would treat yours sometimes. I understand some of uh, Sherman's concerns. They're they're out there. We know that about how they would uh, put together uh, a state-of-the-art brain trust. How are they going to do that on the fly last minute? Really? I mean, we talked about this. So you're going to criticize them that uh, now? He brings up Cohen's uh, reputation for the business world, which I think is hogwash. I don't think anybody cares. I know that now, all of a sudden, uh, John Ricco and Sandy Alderson being involved is antiquated. When I said that and was concerned about that, it was, oh, he's a respected uh, executive. It's like, come on. Guys coming to New York didn't want to come to New York because there's expectations and accountability, and it was a tough, chaotic environment, and they're taking a risk. And guess what? Maybe New York's not the place they want to live. That's part of that, too. And you're doing this on the fly. Remember what we said, how historically significant and difficult this is. Keep that in mind throughout the season as they have success, because this is hard what they're doing. It's normally hard to win. It's even harder with what they're trying to do. When the Mets traded for Lindor and Carrasco, I thought that kind of made my edict of signing two of the three big free agents. And they're not counting McCann, clearly. Maybe McCann will be, and McCann, I think, is going to, if he lives up to the hype, he's going to be a very underrated signing. Uh, very uh, Yankees-esque of the 90s type of signing. But when I they made that Carrasco-Lindor trade, it took the pressure off of having to overpay for those guys. They nearly made the splash for Bauer. And now they're talking, you can't go in one breath, Sherman, and say the Mets need to be less Wilponian, and then the next breath say, well, they'll never be this wide open in free agency. Well, if the Wilpons were owners, I think that you would have a better case of this than Cohen. So you're talking out of both sides of your mouth in this article. All this article was, all the DeGrom, are you unhappy about your salary, uh, does, is create agita for the fans. That's what they want to do. They want that narrative. There is no interest in the media having the Mets be good. They want this function. They want this not to work out. They want you to be miserable. Remember, and I said this to somebody yesterday in passing, and we're just talking about media in general. There is no benefit for the media when you're happy. Because when you're happy, you don't need them. Remember that. And that's not what this podcast is about, and that's not what we're about, and that's not what covering the team is about. It's about having a real, intelligent, rational debate. And this kind of behavior, which I'm sure generated the clicks they want, but to me as a writer, it's about as biased and insincere of a take than ever. Because just read the piece. There's so many contradictions. You don't want them to be Wilpanian, but then you cite that they can't sign Conforto because Boris is his agent. You don't want them to be Wilpanian, but then you say, well, they'll never have a better chance to sign free agents and be this wide open. Well, you have the owner that doesn't need that. So put all that, again, I keep telling you guys, put that stuff aside. This is not a perfect team. I have concerns. And we're going to sit back now, and it's time to get to work. To quote, and I'm a Knicks fan, and I love Tom. what Tom Thibodeau has done here early in the, uh, the process with the Knicks, a team that's in far worse shape and far worse reputation over the last two decades than anything the Mets have done. But the magic's in the work, he said. That was a quote he used earlier this year, and I remember that because that's going to go up on my board. There's a few quotes, mainly like a lot of Pat Riley's Bill Parcell quotes over the years, that go up on the mantle for me. That one's going to go. The magic's in the work, and that's where we're at now. All the offseason and hot stove doesn't matter anymore. It means nothing. 
means nothing to any of us. Now we sit back and we see results and we see the guys that are brought in perform and we see the front office continue to evolve and we see the manager who has a lot of potential and promise who had this opportunity thrown on him like basically in the middle of the night because of a bad situation. Can he become a really historic piece of the Mets? And what a great story that'll be if he sticks and does well. That he wasn't supposed to be the guy, he lost that on the job, and he gets it thrown at him. So the Mets are good. They're not perfect. But forget about the offseason and forget about the disappointment. And by no means is what happened in November, December, January, February going to take away from this baseball season. 162-game season that hopefully will lead to a DH. Probably not, but hopefully. And hopefully this will be the last year of public health and safety rules like runner on second and uh, seven-inning doubleheaders. I want professional baseball. Little League, I grew out of that a long time ago. All right, let's take a quick break. Before we get to Glendon Rush, Fernando Tatis Jr. signed a big extension. Francisco Lindor's name came up again. Ken Davidoff, another post columnist, actually who I never agree with, wrote something I do agree with. The Mets should wait and really think hard before they sign Lindor. I've talked about this before, but I want to bring it up again. That and more right after this. Fernando Tatis Jr. is locked in with the San Diego Padres for a long time. The 22-year-old star reportedly agreed to terms on a 14-year, $340 million contract with the team, making it the third largest deal in baseball history and the longest deal ever in Major League Baseball history. Yeah, I'm not in, I'm not in, that, in those conversations. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I have talked to both of them, and, I mean, those two guys are two of our leaders. I and, mean, you know, we, we have several leaders here, and, uh, even though um, Lindor hasn't, you know, been in the facility yet, he's, he should be here in a in a few days when the position players uh, report. Uh, he's already portraying as a leader. I mean, the conversations that we had, they're being off the chart about uh, how we're going to go about it and, and different things. Uh, Michael, I'm in touch with him too, and you know, all they talk about is the team and baseball. Um, you know, it's I mean, you you talk about those two, it'll be great that they're you know here for years you know I think uh, uh, you know our fan base will you know that that always supports every Met player you know will also be happy with those two guys being extended and um, and you know our, our team as well will they will feed off of it I mean those are two of our leaders you know their presence is strong is strong in the clubhouse their presence is strong out on the field um, and but our my conversations with them as they have been strictly baseball in the offseason All right, we're back, and I don't want to take too long on this because I know you guys want to get to Glenn and Rush, and I think you'll enjoy that interview. But So Fernando Tatis Jr. signs this 14-year, $350 million deal, longest deal in history. Uh, I, I mean, look, you've heard my thoughts if you listen to this show a long time. I don't like any contract over three years. Uh, for for pitchers, definitely over not nothing over three years. And for hitters, I'd like to keep it to five. Of course, that's rational, and you wouldn't sign anybody. I've said that. But 14 years, 10 years, I think baseball, you don't think about where you were 10 years ago. Think about where you were 14 years ago, no matter what age you are listening to this program. And then think about yourself today and think about what happened and think about how many things changed. And if there was a 14 year commitment of some sorts, other than a house, 
which is is what it is. You can't go. You, you could go lower if you have the money, I guess. Um, it's a big deal, and I don't support that. But I know that you know teams like the Padres they need to lock people up and get some cost certainty. And you don't want uh, in this day and age of media, uh, everybody making batting their eyes at a big uh, star in a smaller market. The Yankees, the Mets, whatever they want to keep him away. Now with Lindor, that begged the question. Is he next? Should the Mets go that route? And then you had Ken Davidoff, another New York Post gaslighting hot takes guy who likes the Yankees, like Sherman, uh, writes something that's probably the best thing he's written in a long time. And it was really like what I said when the Mets traded for Lindor and everybody's got you know, got to sign him. You know what? You have the owner now that you don't have to do that. And you have inventory at that position, even though you don't want to rely on that because players have a say. Uh, just because Javier Baez is a free agent doesn't want, mean he wants to leave the Cubs. Same thing with Trevor Story in the Rockies and Corey Sager and so on. So it doesn't mean that just because you don't sign Lindor, there's other big shortstops out there. You'll sign one of them. We learned that this offseason. But before we start putting pen to paper and handing him the keys of the kingdom here, realize that he has not played even a spring training inning for the Mets. We have no idea how he's going to adapt and adjust to this town. He's had... A couple of years where he hasn't been elite, Lindor, he's been very good. But the kind of contract you're talking about, $40 million, potentially AAV, 10-year contract, that's a long-term marriage. Look at the David Wright contract and how much of an albatross that was at the end. And I know you have a new owner, but anytime you sign somebody for that kind of money, 20 30 $40 million, and look at Cespedes for a couple of years, those become sunk cost and they hurt regardless of ownership, whether you're the Dodgers or the Mets or the Yankees, eventually they hurt your flexibility. Maybe not to go out and get new and better stars, but on the back half of the roster and the fringes of the roster, moves like the Taiwan Walker move, the Pilar move, could get impacted, and that's sometimes the difference on the fringes of winning and losing. Now, that doesn't mean I say don't sign Lindor, but I'm in the Davidoff camp. Let's see him adapt and adjust. Uh, There's this deadline of the end of spring training, so be it. That's his deadline. You could sign him after the season. You're going to tell me you come to him, and I know he doesn't want to, and you offer him a record-breaking contract. If you remember, in the midst of 2006, the Mets signed Reyes and Wright to extensions in the middle of the season. I know those are different players in different circumstances because they were controllable, but you can do something in the middle of the season, and if, it's, and if, and if he's as good as he says he is, it'll be a no-brainer deal, and it won't require a tremendous amount of back and forth, even though that's probably what Sandy Alderson, he's that kind of negotiator. Look at what you're faced. Fangraphs has him at $233 million over the last six years of value. Whether you like the way they figure it out or not, we don't know the sauce. That's about a $40 million per year average value over the last six years. If you use that as what the agent's going to go by, and if I was his agent, and I have my own internal metrics, but I'm going to use that, that's pretty fair. You're looking at a five-year deal if you do a short-term deal for about $200 million-ish type dollars, $40 million AAV. That is going to be your core player. That's going to be the guy that everyone else is going to fall below at that point. Even Conforto. Conforto's not going to get more than $30 million. I'd be shocked. Now, if you go the longer term, Bryce Harper, 10. Fernando Tatis Jr., 10 to 14-year deal, 350 to $400 million. You'll lower that AAV, let's say, about $5 million. But now you're married to this guy for the rest of his life. I don't think he gets that long. He's 26. He's not 22. And 10 years brings him pretty much to the end of his career. He's a middle infielder. He's going to rely on his legs. 
that's uh, not going to go well towards the end. I wasn't in favor of... I mean, A-Rod was a different game. A-Rod was very young. That first contract was great. There was no issue with me with that one. When the Yankees re-upped for another decade, and you saw what happened there, and again, a different situation. But as you get older, different type of player. The player you're paying for is certainly not the player that you uh, paid for in the early run. He's 26 to 27 years old. If I'm him... I don't think the Mets or anybody's going to give him that 10-12 year deal that makes it worth it unless he's really big on security. I think you can make more money going back out in the market in 5 years and going at it again. And you're still 30-31, you're in your you're entering your late prime, but you're not a, you're not over the hill. And you probably can make more money than maybe 50-60-70 million dollars more. That's a big deal. That's me. I don't know the player, I don't know his family, I don't know what's important to him. But all I'm going to say is this. Before you guys start throwing around Steve Cohen's money and freaking out about signing Lindor, can we watch him play a little bit? And you know what? He wants to lead the Grapefruit League. Is that still allowed to be called the Grapefruit League? Or we're changing that too. I know they changed AAA. If he le- I'm going to call it the Grapefruit League. I don't care. If, they, if he leads the Grapefruit League in hitting and plays great defense and you want to sign him before opening day because you're convinced that that matters, so be it. But at least let him play something here. Because you're basing everything on the back of the baseball card. I'll use that term. Now it's the back. It's the baseball reference page or the fan graph page. Nobody talks about back of the baseball card. I'll use the term, an old school term, back of the baseball card. And I think just because Davidoff, who we don't like, we know that he's kind of a, a, a gaslighter here. Um, just because he brought it up doesn't mean it's wrong. Because I brought this up when the trade was made. Relax. You guys are like, you know, kids in a candy store. Just because you got new toys doesn't mean you have to lock them up for the rest of your life. Let's see what the guy's got. Because you have an owner with money, you don't have to pigeonhole everybody and have a perfect situation. Just like I said with Sherman in the market. doesn't have to be a perfect offseason market for the Mets to compete with the big boys. They can compete. Until further notice, and there's reason to believe that they can't. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, Glendon Rush, member of the 2000 uh, National League champion Mets, Pitched in the playoffs that year, pitched well, pitched in the World Series against the Yankees. He's going to kick off pitchers and catchers, talk a little pitching, and he's actually got some really encouraging words about a current Mets pitcher that I really think you guys will enjoy hearing. So sit back, relax, and when we come back, Glenn the Rush, former Met, right after this. The Hall of Fame debate brings out some of the most passionate baseball conversation, adding steroids in the modern-day superstars and you get a complicated predicament even for the most tenured voter. Longtime BBWAA member and America's most beloved sports writer, Kevin Kernan, shared what he would like to see happen to Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and others on the Talk Your Mets podcast. I'm almost to the point, Mike, that baseball has screwed this up so much with the whole, why am I on that wall? It's, you know, it's like from a few my, good men. It's not my job to be on the wall. It's my job to, uh, and I've seen all these players. That's the other thing. Everybody on that on that on that list, I've seen now. I saw their careers. I covered baseball, so so I'm off the wall. I almost want to. I got, I'm going two ways here, Mike, and it could it could be interesting. Um, I'm either gonna if they don't make it this year, and I don't vote for them again, and they don't make it next year, I'm putting Clemens and Bonds in the hands of baseball. Let the Veterans Committee, which has given us such wonderful Hall of Famers as Harold Baines, let them. Let them uh, let them decide on Bonds and Clemens, and let them you know because 
and people say, well, there's already uh, steroid guys in the Hall of Fame. That's true. We know that. You know, guy, I'm sure guys who use are in there. But right. these guys are really super tainted. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmitspodcast.com. We're back, and I'm joined by former big leaguer Glendon Rush. You guys know him, member of the 2000 National League uh, pennant winners, the Mets. Big league career, over 10 years, and uh, he's joining me. And Glendon, uh, figured I'd get a big league picture on the first day of pitchers and catchers, right? Let's do that. And do you get the itch? Does the left arm still have some juice in it? I heard you still play some baseball out there. There's a rumor that you have still some leagues that you're playing in there out by you. So... Uh, welcome to the program and, uh, how you feeling today on the first day of pitchers and catchers. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I feel great. I love this time of year. It's always fun to, uh, see when, when pitchers and catchers report and yes, I think we all get the itch, you know, over, over time. And, and you're used to that being a part of your life. And, but now it's more the itch to turn on MLB network or, uh, go through Twitter and see what's going on in the news and all the, at all the spring training camps. Glennon's on Twitter at Glennon Rush. And it's interesting you say that. It seems like you're still, if people follow you on Twitter, you're still into the game. You know, I talked to a lot of guys that played as long as you did. And when they retired, they're like, I-, I can't do it anymore. It was a job. You still enjoy watching the game and interacting. You still have it in you, even though it's been a while since you played. I do. I think I was, I was always a fan. And, um, you know, ever since I was a kid, I was a, a fan of major league baseball and growing up in Seattle, followed the Mariners Braves were my national league team um, because of being on TBS all the time. So I was always watching and, um, you know, grew up just following all the, all the players, you know, the Seattle guys, the, the Ken Griffey jr. And the Atlanta Braves guys. And, and um, it, it was always kind of just part of everyday life for me. And so I, I, I really haven't changed. Uh, once I retired, I, I still want to be involved and, and love watching. And I love interacting with the fans too. Pitches and catches is like that first day back from summer vacation when you were in school, right? Is that how it felt? You get back, you get to see your new teammates. How was it for you? Was it like a routine that you did? I mean, I know the training is intense now with these guys. Were you like a guy that did a lot of intense training throughout the off season? So when you came into camp, it was pretty much you're ready to go or did you build up at that time different era different type of uh, technology as well yeah I always came into spring training kind of game ready I did a lot of throwing in the winter um fortunately I was I was lucky to have an arm that that could take it and uh I I came into camp ready to go as far as intense training not a ton I mean I don't think we were uh as far along as these guys are now man these guys are in incredible shape and we have so many hard throwers and and uh you know, muscular athletic guys in the league now compared to um, it just keeps getting more and more. I think each generation uh, you see that and the training's better. That's, that's the bottom line. It is. It's funny on your Twitter profile, you talk about having that 88 mile an hour fastball and you know what, back in the day, nineties plenty, but you know, it's interesting now with, do you ever wonder what you could have done if you had some of, I mean, the technology sometimes could get to be too much, the analytics, the, the, the hot zones, the cold zones. Do you ever wonder if you had access to some of this stuff? What, what would have been for you would have, would have made a difference? Yeah, I think it all helps. And I, I would have loved, I would have taken on as much information as I could get. I mean, we had a lot, look, we had, we had, uh, you know, advanced scouts and guys that did a lot of work for us and, and uh, pitching coaches and bullpen coaches that helped us along the way and, and gave us reports and, and then, you know, other veteran pitchers being around those guys too, that, that new guys. So 
I, I think we had a ton. I, it, it just wasn't all in front of you um, and as, as accessible probably as it is now. So I look back, you started out with the Royals before you came to the Mets. You know, you were a young guy. You were in low A or high A and two years later you're in the big leagues. But your first game, eight shutout innings, impressive. In the Metrodome, Paul Molitor across the field, Chuck Knobloch, future teammate Matt Lawton, Terry Steinbach. Talk about that. That's got to be, you know, that's, you know, bang, you high expectations, young team, the Royals. Uh, and here you are, a lefty coming up and shutting down the Twins. Yeah, that was cool. That was um, kind of kind of an ambush start. Uh, I made the team that spring training, and they weren't sure if I was going to kind of be a long guy in the bullpen or get a start early in the year. And and I ended up getting that start. Bob Boone gave me the opportunity. And uh, I, I remember being rubber-legged and rubber-kneed out there warming up and, and being in the Metrodome and you know, it's another one of those places you see as a kid, right? Growing up and you, you watch twins games and, and then, yeah, that lineup that I faced was a veteran lineup with all those guys in there, especially Paul Molitor, Terry Steinbach, Knobloch, all those guys. So it was cool. And once I kind of got my feet underneath me, I barely got out of the first inning. I got in a jam and, and ended up getting out of that jam, but, it, but uh, had a good start and went deep into the game and the boys swung the bat for me. I'll never forget that. Mike Sweeney hit a big home run off Brad Radke. Um, so yeah, it's crazy. I can kind of remember that 24 years later. Look at that. And I'm thinking you just said you were a Braves fan. Were you thinking here you're on the mound five years earlier, six years earlier, uh, the Braves won the world series against these guys. And it's the, you know, Metro dome, loud crowd, not an easy ballpark for a pitcher, the ball, you know, the turf and everything. Were any of those thoughts and memories coming up for you as you're standing on the mound as a Braves fan, uh, as a young kid? Yeah, I don't think you can help but remember that that Jack Morris John Schmoltz matchup, right? In that series, um, watching right. those guys battle it out. But yeah, with the towels swinging and uh, uh, hopefully the uh, ball wasn't carrying too well one way or the other for for the other guys. So, um, but yeah, no, a lot of great memories there. It was a tough time to be with the Royals. You had some veterans on that staff like Kevin Apier, Pat Rapp, uh, you know, guys like that you know, coming up in that situation where they're rebuilding, was it tougher for you? Because obviously there's expectations as a young pitcher and sometimes being on a losing team, that losing environment, did you ever wonder would it have been easier to come into, you know, maybe a situation like what the Mets were when you went there, where they were ready to win or the Cubs were ready to win later in your career. You ever wonder, was it harder for you because you came into a rebuild situation? Well, yeah, I think the biggest difference is when you, when you get the opportunity um, in, in a, organization like I did in Kansas City where we weren't a playoff caliber team um, I got the opportunity to go out and get starts and get innings and learn and you know I got my butt kicked for 300 plus innings in the American League for a couple years and then that that helped uh, you know me grow as a pitcher and then when I ended up in New York I was a little bit more prepared so uh, I I still almost treated myself like a rookie when I showed up to New York because I was such a young guy on that team and on that staff and and had uh, great veteran leadership to help me and the guys in Kansas City were awesome. Apier, Tim Belcher, Pat Rapp, all those guys, Jeff Montgomery, those guys helped me a lot. And it's funny because as I'm listening to you, you know, today, you know, you were a fairly top prospect with the Royals. Um, they may not have put you in the big leagues to get your butt kicked or when you weren't ready. 170 innings, 150 innings your first couple of years. Uh, obviously, there's the cost perspective. They wouldn't want you to pitch because they want to hold your salary down. We know that would go on. But more importantly, um, you know, was there a value to being at the big league level, having that struggle versus dominating AAA? What What are your thoughts on that? Would it have helped you having more time in the minors? Uh, the mindset this this time around would be totally different as a, as a, as you know the way the organizations are run. 
Well, the 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 playoff teams and World Series contenders don't necessarily have that luxury to do that. So that right. you know they they have a fifth starter um, that comes up, and if he doesn't perform well for one or two starts, he might be back to AAA. So so you get that benefit being where I was. So I, I was kind of in the right place at the right time, and it was great to be able to do it as a 22 and 23 year old. So then when I did show up to the Mets. Um, and had that, you know, veteran leadership behind me and Bobby V helping me out. Um, I, I think Dave Wallace was huge. Uh, him and him, him and Charlie Huff back to back years there as pitching coaches. But man, that that helps so much to have big league experience because there's nothing like big league experience. Triple A is different. Triple A is a really tough level, um, and you face a lot of good players there. But it's not the big leagues and and the experience uh, with the triple decker stadiums and the big lights on and being on TV mm-hmm. is a different ball game. Glennon Rush, former big leaguer, member of the 2000 Mets uh, NL champions. And you coming to the Mets was interesting. It's like that sneaky trade, that little buy print in the newspaper in September. Glennon Rush gets traded to the Mets and everyone goes, who? And you pitch one inning. But you got the chance to have the best seats in the house watching a great playoff run and the beginning of a two, three-year run. Uh, so you get traded to the Mets. Was that out of left field for you? And, and here's a Kansas City guy. Now you're getting thrown into New York. You know, you're still a young guy. Like, talk about that. That's That's got to be a lot of stuff going on at that time of the year where you're settled. So now you're uprooting your family, I'm sure, too, in September. That's not common to have to do that. No, it's not. It was very out of left field. It was um, – and, 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 you know, the funny story behind it is the, the, the guy that was on my end of it helping me get to the Mets was a guy who you guys just had for quite a while there, Allard Baird. Uh, mm-hmm. Allard was in the front office with the Royals – and help facilitate that trade um, to give me an opportunity in New York because uh, uh, Kansas city kind of felt like that, that was the end for me. They had seen enough and, and he got me that opportunity. I was supposed to start that night for the Royals in a double header and got the call in the morning. Hey, you just got traded the Mets, go join them in Colorado. And so I showed up basically at game time and got to meet all those guys. And man, right. what you, when you said front row seat, that's what it was all about. So to, to watch that playoff run, uh, that they had in 99 and be around Al Leiter, Kenny Rogers, Johnny Franco, Oral Hershiser, all those guys, uh, Pat Mahomes in the bullpen. I mean, those guys helped me a lot. So it was, it was awesome. You go into the next season and you had to earn a spot on the roster. Now, I don't know if you, how into advanced analytics you are, but I went on to fan graphs and I don't know if you realize, but if you want to, whether people like the stat or not, wins above replacement, you were ninth in 2000. Do you realize you were better, according to Fangraphs, than Schilling, than Hampton? And I'll give you one, Glavin, who you watch go. And, I mean, that's, that's their numbers. That's not me just trying to blow smoke here. Did you realize how good that season was for you? You were sneaky good, and I think you're underrated because you were 11-11, and 11, and you gave them a lot of innings on a team that in the back half of the rotation had Bobby Jones, who had some injuries. Um, you know, so you had a, a very good season. Did you realize how good it was? And uh, sometimes you get a little overlooked because of some of the names you mentioned that were ahead of you. Yeah, I did after. Um, I, I think it was kind of longer down the road where you look back and you go, man, I, I put together a really good year. Um, you know, you look at a four ERA at the time, pretty decent. You know, the leagues were pretty offensive minded at that point in time. Um, but but the record could easily probably been a few more wins and a few less losses. I mean, there was some really tight games in there. I faced some, I, I had some tough matchups that year, but, but was able to give a, a lot of innings and make all my starts. And I don't think I made my first start till about three weeks into the season that year. Yep. And it's funny. You said offense, you know, everybody talks about home runs today, but when you look, especially the teams you played in the postseason that year, Cardinals, Giants, 
Uh, everybody average, averaging more than five runs a game. Uh, no easy outs in the lineup. I, I, I guess there's got to be a number crunch that somebody could do, but I feel like the offense in a lot of ways was harder back then, not just because of the other stuff that people talk about, but the strikeouts now make it where it's a little feast or famine. It was less feast or famine. It's amazing looking back. You know, I remember back watching it, you know, you had the Colorado Rockies averaging six runs a game. I mean, it's like softball numbers. And here you are trying to navigate those lineups. I mean, um, do you have a look now and think it's a little bit easier in some ways because of the approach that players have that maybe you'd have an easier time now to kind of work through some of these lineups? Uh, I don't necessarily know if a guy like me would. Um, I, I think the stuff is far superior now over, you know, across the board. I mean, there's no other way to look at it when you look at fastball and, and slider, you know, command, all, all the stuff that the guys have now. There'll, there'll be a ton of arguments on command, right? How how, right. how good the command is now versus what it right. was then. I, I mean, we can go all day about that. But I think a guy like me that was a, you know, 88 to 90 mile an hour fastball guy, and and uh, I, I think I would have had to battle now just like I did back then. But but yeah, there was some great lineups back then. And, and I, I think there's a bunch of great lineups now too. It's just strikeouts more prevalent. Guys are trying to hit more homers and and the dudes on the mound are striking a lot of guys out. And throwing hard. Glennon Rush, former big leaguer, former Met, uh, joining me. Uh, 2000. So going back to that, is there a memory outside of obviously going to the World Series that when you think of that season, is it personal to you? It may not be overt, you know, a game. Is there what comes to your mind? Is there one or two things that come to your mind about that season that, you know, you just look back and smile? Um, I, the spring training experience, I think, was yeah. a was a really cool uh, thing for me because I really had to go in there and battle you know there was four of us fighting for one job and and I just kind of put my nose to the grindstone and worked hard and and was able to win that spot and and you know the key is once you win a spot this happens every year right there, there's battles in every roster and the the truth is the guys that don't make it usually are going to help the team in some capacity anyways. Right. Uh, but you never look at it that way when you're in that battle. It's like, man, I want to make the team. I want to be on the roster. Um, but fortunately, once I got the opportunity, I threw well enough to, to hold that spot and just keep going. And spring training for a guy like you that was trying to make it, you got the veterans, they'll do their at-bats, they'll do their work, and then they go hit the course. It's a lot more stress for a guy like you at that point because your career's on the line and now you're with the new team. I mean, is it a different mindset and approach as you got to be later in your career as a veteran where you look back and it was more, you know, game time maybe in spring training for you? Yeah, it was stressful. I, I think I'm glad that there was no Twitter. I wasn't fully introduced to the uh, the strength of the New York media at that point in time. So I wasn't That's reading all the, yeah, I wasn't reading yeah. all the papers and everything as spring training went along. So they were probably analyzing all of us, right. To see who's going to make it and who's doing what, right. but I didn't really pay attention to it. So I think that was probably some, some uh, being naive that helped for sure. And I didn't realize you were actually the, you know, one of the, you know, memories or events that season was when you had the whole day night doubleheader. You, you started the night game at Yankee stadium. That was the game where the Piazza Clemens thing happened. You went eight innings, you lost, you pitched pretty well, but you, that must have been an intense day. I mean, I was—I didn't realize you started that second game at Yankee Stadium after a very tough early day loss. There was a lot of intensity, a lot of emotion, very emotional night. I'm not sure if you remember anything about that. Yeah, I remember all of it. Um, I, I remember the the weird feeling I got driving into Shea around game time. So it was a sellout crowd. 
and to drive in through the guards and go in when it's a full state. It's, it's almost like that nightmare you have as a player, right? That you wake right. up and you're late to the ballpark and all that. Sure. I think the matchup during the day, correct me if I'm wrong, might have been Bobby Jones and Dwight Gooden. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm not positive, but but yeah, so it was it was odd showing up at a day game at Shea and then kind of sitting around all day, get some food, and then bussing across town and starting at Yankee Stadium. And yeah, of course, I mean, that was a famous game. Unfortunately, Mike got hit in the head and, um, you know, we took care of business on our end. And, and yeah, I, I really threw well that game. I, I, I um, ended up, I think, a complete game loss. And Clemens, yep. Clemens uh, shut us down. So that was a tough one. Did you, and now, I don't remember. Were you, did you have to retaliate? Was there any thought? Like, because here you're trying to win a game. Now your star gets hit, gets concussed. Obviously, there's that, you know, do you retaliate? You don't want to hurt anybody, obviously. What do you remember about that? Did you feel like a need to, like, hey, you know, and obviously Sean Estes a couple of years later had to take care of business with Clemens, but at that time, you know, DH and everything like that. I did. I, I, um, I hit Tino Martinez um, the following inning. Um, and, you know, one of the nicest guys in the world, right? And, the, and right. the nicest guy in the league and another Mariner guy I grew up watching too. So, but yeah, I hit Tino and, you know, there wasn't really obviously any personal bad blood between us. It was, right. hey, I'm going to, I'm going to protect my teammates and take care of what needs to be taken care of. Um, I got a warning. I stayed in the game and ended up finishing the game, but uh, I'm sure if I would have hit one more guy, I would have been showering. Yep. That's for sure. Uh, so you pitch well, you win 11 games. Uh, that's, you know, nobody could, you know, people forget how hard it is to win big league games, you know, 11 games, you know, it's, it's a tough situation, but now the postseason comes and you're in the bullpen and they go with the veteran and you pitch very well that postseason. How is that? Is that I'm sure it was disappointing for you. I'll be honest, and I'm not just telling you this. I remember the debate. Everybody thought you were the better pitcher than Joe. Jones was the veteran, but he was a little bit more hittable than you. He goes out and pitches a one hitter. So you, so Bobby V looks pretty good, but you wound up helping Bobby Jones in this in the NLCS with a bridging the gap on a on a, a game four victory, a big victory. So for you going into that postseason, I'm sure there was some disappointment. But it's from the statistics, at least, it looks like you embraced the role and you did fairly well out of the bullpen, very well out of the bullpen. I can tell you there was absolutely no disappointment. I was um, I was excited where we were as a team and wanted to contribute in any way that I could. And Bobby V sat me down before the, the playoffs started and said, I, I think you're going to help us more out of the bullpen. Um, the ability to give us some innings in the middle, um, multiple days, uh, than, than you to start I think it it really worked out well and and uh I trusted him and and you know it worked out the the way it should have worked out Bobby Jones was awesome uh pitched one of the best games I've ever seen in my life um you know in that playoff game and and like you said I came in and kind of helped him out and bridge the gap in the NLCS I think one of the best games in that postseason is that game two win in San Francisco if you remember and that's the game where Franco strikes out Barry Bonds that was a great series. That would I mean three really tough teams. I don't think the, I, I look back and I didn't realize how good the Giants offense was. You had the was the 14 inning game in the cold. Uh, the Cardinals, a great offense. Uh, if you look back, do you ever take a step back and realize, you know, how difficult it was and how good those players were that you guys were playing? Those were really good teams. We went through some really good teams to get there that year. And, and I felt we were every bit as good or better than the Yankees that year too. And they were, you know, working on a three-peat. So, uh, to, you know, to say that for where we were as a, as a team and how confident we were in our ability and 
what we believed in. I mean, we all thought we were going to win the World Series and and didn't have a doubt about it. Uh, but we got shut down. Their bullpen killed us, man. Their bullpen was yeah. awesome. Uh, you know, Stanton, Nelson, and Rivera. Once they took the lead, we we couldn't uh, come back and you know lose four games by a total of five runs. I think was that series, and and that that was all done by the bullpen. Do you think it would have been you know, it's special to go to the World Series? But I always wonder. You had to share it with the other team in town. Was there ever that one thing where you might have wanted to play Seattle? You might have wanted to play, so the town was yours. I know the World Series you want to get there, but would it have been a little different, you think, if it was just the Mets kind of like not having to share? Because you had the Subway Series already that year. It was almost you had to share the stage at that point. Yeah, it's interesting. I never really thought about it that way. I know that I was a little bit scared of it being Seattle because of that being my hometown. Sure, I didn't think of that. <laughs> my that. my uh, pass list would have been a nightmare. Right. So. You would have been having to trade for tickets with your teammates. You would have had to, you would have had to owe them yeah. a lot of money the following spring. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So no, I, I, I think it, um, I think we were all kind of rooting for it to be Yankees Mets and, and coming off them winning the, the last two world series, right? If you're going to, if you're going to climb over somebody, that was the team to go at. Now the following year, you may have pitched one of your best games again against a really tough lineup. Manny Ramirez, Dante Bichette, the Red Sox at Shea stadium. You didn't finish the one hitter. But you got eight innings out of it. Uh, was that? I mean, statistically, you look at Baseball Reference. That your that's your best start. But did that was that? Did you feel like that was your best start? Was you cognizant? I don't know when you gave up the hit, but um, you know, pretty close to making history there. Yeah, the hit was a the hit was a bunt signal a signal bunt single single that I was um, I was kind of late covering first base in the first inning, uh, so it was kind of a partially on me and and uh and then yeah you you don't really think about it until next thing you look up and you're in the seventh and eighth and that was the only hit of the game and Armando finished it out uh win number 1000 for Bobby V so that yeah that was a special day and I never forget that one um I always uh fans always tweet me about it and talk to me about it and I love it yeah it's a, it, that was a cool experience you played you mentioned Bobby V I look you played for Bob Boone Bobby Valentine, Dusty Baker, Bruce Bochy. You had some real serious Hall of Fame level managers. I mean, did you take something away from each one of them? Was there one that stands out more? Not that you, anybody was bad, but did you enjoy playing for one more than another? What was your, you know, how did you like playing for those guys? And how, you know, how did Bobby V, I guess, stack up with all those guys? Bobby was awesome. He treated me as well as you could ask for and, and um, was, was very, very supportive of me and, and helped me along in my career. Dusty Baker, man, he is one of my favorites. I still talk to Dusty. I still talk to Bobby V. Um, but, man, yeah, I had some great managers. Bob Boone at the beginning, Tony Muser, Ned Yost I had. His, that was kind of his first year as a big league manager. I had him. Um, Buddy Black, Clint Hurdle. So, yeah, I'll, the list of, of guys I had was I, I was very fortunate. And, and, yeah, you just soak in everything you can get from those guys and, and the bench coaches that were with them and, Everyone on those staffs, man, that was one of my favorite things to do is sit down and talk to coaches during games and, and uh, hear what, what, what they have to share and what their experiences are, and it's a lot of fun. You're in the 2000 Subway Series, but then you have, the, obviously, the 9-11 tragedy the next year. You came back, you pitched in that series in Pittsburgh. Uh, surreal time. I remember being you know, you know, around the city during that time. What do you remember about that two-week period? There was a lot of good baseball moments in the backdrop of all this uncertainty and tragedy, but are there any good baseball memories you took away from maybe the camaraderie or getting closer or, you know, something positive from what was obviously a very difficult situation? 
Yeah, what we did as a team and, and being being in that city and, and helping out was a was a uh, something I'll never forget. Um, I was a mental wreck when when I had to actually come back and pitch because it was you had so many things running through your head that it was it was tough to focus on what we had to do, you know, as a, as a team and play baseball when there's that tragedy and so many people hurting and, and everything else. And I think it was, uh, it was an experience I'll never forget. And I love every year when they show the, the game against the Braves, when we came back and played in New York and, and the joy that that brought to people was awesome. I wonder which, you know, uh, I've talked to people who are at that game and then also the 10 run inning game, both games that you were in the stadium and people debate when, which was louder, which stadium I could tell you the postseason games being a young fan sitting in the upper deck, that place would go like this. Yeah. I remember in game game uh, three against the giants, Alfonso ties the game and I'm in the last row of the upper deck, literally the last row. And I'll tell you that place shook. Cause I, I could vouch for it. Would you, which, you know, was that the most, the loudest at that nine 11 game after Piazza's home run that the stadium was at? Was there ever an experience in your career at a stadium uh, that was like that? I, I would guess I'd ask. Nothing was louder than the playoffs in the world series. Um, and especially cause they, they, piped up the sound system in there sure. even louder than normal and everything else. But I'll tell you those two home runs that Mike hit the, the one in, in the nine 11 comeback game and the, uh, the one off Mulholland, I think in the, in that, uh, yep. comeback, man. Uh, yes. The stadium was shaken and we could feel it down in the dugout. No doubt about it. You need the exit. You didn't have the exit velocity back then. The exit velocity on the Mulholland one. I'd love to see that because it was like, like that, almost like yeah. a blink of an eye type of deal. I would be remiss as we wrap up here if I'm talking to a pitcher who had three home runs in their career, and I, I didn't realize that until I said, "Let me see what he if he could hit three. You have to have the balls of those home runs. You have a bunch. As I'm talking to you, you have a bunch of baseballs behind you. One of those home runs have to be in your in your case over there. It has to I got, be. So. I got one of them in there. I'm not sure which one it is, but uh, yeah, <laughs> people always ask me who they were off of and all that fun stuff and. Um, I hit one with the Brewers that was off Rick Helling and then mm-hmm. uh, two when I was with the Cubs one off Chris Carpenter and one off that's a the, good that's a good pitcher that's right that, yeah. that's not a cheapie over there that's the not a young guy yeah and, yeah uh, one off uh, Luke Hudson from the Reds but yeah that the, there's no cooler feeling than hitting a home run in the big leagues as a, as a pitcher I mean there's nothing like it so I'm around the same age as you. I watched the Mets in 2000. Here I am watching Pat Mahomes' son play quarterback in the Super Bowl. It's got to make you feel a little old. I see photos of the young Pat Mahomes with Mike Hampton in the outfield. Is that a little surreal now seeing your former teammate's son winning Super Bowls over there and playing on the big stage uh, in Kansas City? It's so cool because, I, I you know, I, I remember having, um, you know, little Patrick around the clubhouse and and running around shagging and everything. And, and I had such a great – uh, relationship with his dad. Um, we just, we hit it off when I got there and, and, uh, I used to ride to the park a bunch on the road. I'd ride to the ballpark with, with, uh, big Pat and with Ricky Henderson. And those guys made me laugh. Oh, geez. I mean, it was, Rick, did Ricky know your name? Did he know who you were? <laughs> yes. My name was lefty. Your name was lefty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ricky knew my name. My name was Ricky lefty. knew your name. So he didn't know John Olrud's name, but he knew your name. Don't yeah. He knew my <laughs> name. Yeah. No, but uh, those guys were awesome. So yeah. So cool to see um, what Patrick has done. And yeah, I mean, he's just incredible and, and, and new, uh, you know, this year's Super Bowl wasn't obviously what he was, what he was hoping for, but um, he'll be back to many more, I assume. 
Now I know you're you're into uh, some projects now. I'll let you talk about that. But you also coach. Did you just over a year with San Diego? You were into coaching. Coaching kind of something you still want to do. Like, what's the next for Glendon Rush now in your post playing career? I did three years in Lake Elsinore uh, for the Padres. Um, I was uh, hired by uh, Mark Pryor. Um, he was the pitching coordinator for um, uh, for the Padres at the time, and so it, it was great. And I had uh, I actually had one of your one of your guys that you just got. I had Joey Lucchese. Um, oh. So Mets fans are going to love Joey Lucchese. So that he's he sneaky. Great- I got to tell you, Glendon. I I saw him pitch when he was in San Diego against the Mets. He's got a funky delivery. He, I don't think he throws hard. I can't remember exactly the gun readings, but he's sneaky. He seems like he's sneaky fast, right? Is that a fair way to say it? Yes, he's he's got a lot of deception. He does have a, you know, he's got a little more fastball than people think, um, but his changeup is really, really good, and, and he's going to be an asset. I think he's going to help the Mets uh, win some games this year, so I'm excited for him. But, yeah, so I, I did three years as a pitching coach, loved it, uh, but I was gone too much and, and away from my kids, so – I, I took a little break from that. And uh, recently, I did, th- this last year, I did some uh, brand ambassador work for uh, the Twin Spire Sportsbook. So I'm, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. So Twin Spire is obviously run by uh, Churchill Downs. And I will be doing some uh, rush hour uh, interviews and, uh, and stuff again this year. I did like about 15 interviews last year, sat down with some retired MLB guys. I will actually be interviewing Bobby V this year. So, Oh, I can't wait to see that. Will he wear the mustache and the glasses for you? That's Maybe I might, I might be able to talk him into it. Yeah. So I got to sit down with some, you know, some really cool people last year. I sat down with Randy Johnson and, um, and a bunch of uh, some old teammates, Ryan Dempster and Kerry Wood. So I'm looking forward to doing some more stuff this year. The Ryan Dempster interview, which is on there is very good. It's very interesting. Now, do you get tired of talking about this 2000 stuff? Because when I reached out to you, I was like, yeah, sometimes these guys are, are over it. Or this, you still enjoy looking back at those years? Or is it a point where you like to talk more about the current game and what have you? I, I think, I, I don't think I ever get tired of talking about um, those years because there, it was, I have so many great memories and I, I love New York and I embraced it and I loved Mets fans, still love Mets fans. I love interacting with Mets fans. When I get back there, I went to St. Lucie last year, uh, right before everything closed down for the pandemic. So I was down there for a few days with Mike Hampton and, um, I'd like to try and get down there again this year. So hopefully I can see the camp and, uh, and just be around the guys. It's a lot of fun. Before I let you go, will Joey Lucchese have as good a year as the 2000 Glendon rush? That's the real question, right? So, I think he will. I think he yeah. will. If you give him 30 plus starts, absolutely. I believe that he can. Interesting. Well, listen, you've been very generous of your time. Thank you. We'll uh, act Lyndon Rush on Twitter. You're great with the fans. Uh, let's catch up again. And, and thank you for everything. Okay. Sounds good. Anytime. Thanks for having me. And that's Glennon Rush, former big leaguer. I thought we learned a lot from him. Very interesting stuff. You know, when we could catch up with a former Met, I'm all for it. And uh, you know, you guys don't see it. We were talking on, uh, on video here, but he had a great, autographed looks like the 2000 team autographed his jersey with some cards and everything great great memorabilia you know and what have you all right let's take a quick break we'll be back with more right after this the talking mets podcast is available on many outlets but the most popular is apple podcast hi i'm mike silver the host of the talking mets podcast and i encourage you to leave a review about the program on apple just rate it one to five stars hopefully a five because why wouldn't you and then if you have time leave a review It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. 
All right, we're back. Final thoughts. Want to thank Glennon Rush for joining us here. Uh, really generous with his time, and I thought it was interesting to look back not just at some of his memories of his time with the Mets, but get his perspective on pitching in a different era. And Jonathan Lucchese, who I think I always liked Lucchese when I saw him pitch against the Mets. He was sneaky. And I'm really curious to see how a lefty, a uh, young lefty, and we saw that with Matt. Sometimes it takes longer for these guys to develop. But perhaps he can develop into what we thought Steven Matz was going to be. But he gave you a really good, quick analysis. And that's somebody who saw him as a young pitcher when he was the pitching coach in the Padres system. So it'll be interesting to see that. We're back, I guess, in terms of weekly shows, uh, spring training mode. What what can you expect over the coming weeks? Well, here's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to get competitive intelligence for you guys. and Let's see what the Nats and the Braves and the Marlins potentially and the Phillies. Let's see what they're all about. I like to talk to some of the competitive writers or, or get a feel of those teams as the spring goes on. It's always a goal of mine. Sometimes things happen, the pandemic, uh, that make it impossible, but I'll see. Of course, we're going to try to hear from Mets beat writers too, because I think that's important. And continue to send me emails, MikeSilvatTalkingMetsPodcast.com, no G, so that I can hear from you and what you guys want to see. And I know I take some time to get back to some of you guys, but I do get back and I do want to hear from you. And uh, sometimes I'll get back to you in this format, just talking to you on the air as we wrap up the program on a weekly basis. Uh, so that's that. You know, there's a lot to now talk about baseball. I, I'm, I'm tired. I know I saw a lot of people say, I'm tired of the hot stove. Well, I am too. And I think it's over. I think the only thing you're going to see in terms of transactional type of conversation is very around the fringes, minor league deals. I don't think you're going to see a big Chris Bryant trade in spring training. You know, maybe an extension like you saw with DeGrom for Lindor or Conforto, but I, I don't I don't know if that's going to happen either, so it'll be interesting to see. But there's a lot of positive. Don't let some of the gaslighting and the negativity go uh, uh, get you down. Come here for the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be able to balance it out with a bridge, as I always say, between the fans, the media, the team, trying to really create a really sane, fun place for us to talk Mets baseball and other issues that are going on around the sport when necessary. I want to thank, again, Glendon Rush for joining me today. Of course, you could check me out all the time. You can check Glendon out on Twitter, at Glendon Rush. But you could check me out all the time, at Mike Silva Media. You can check me out also at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Of course, you can get me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much with any podcasting service you desire. And if you want to interact with me, like I said earlier, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back with another podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody.
Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.